Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is the Tuesday edition, and we're so glad you're able to join us today on this uh, beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Um, we have a special guest with who, I'm, who I will be introducing in a moment. Um, but let me first introduce, well, before I bring on the panelists, let me just uh, take care of some uh, housekeeping here. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, and we hope you are, you have a few more features coming in on the Zoom app, if you're watching us through that. Uh, we want you to click on the chat window or the Q&A box and talk to us by just texting in your questions and your your comments. If you'd like, um, if you're coming in rather on uh, the Facebook page today, we're broadcasting from Chase's Facebook page live, and you would just use the comment box, obviously, on the Facebook page. Keep in mind, the Facebook page uh, is about a 15, uh, 18 second delay from our actual live speaking. The Zoom app is instant and live altogether. So, uh, Everyone on the Tuesday program, if you're coming in normally on Tuesday, you know John, Jonathan uh, Sadler. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Drew? Very good. Good to see you with us. Uh, Jeff and uh, Scott are not with us today. They're out of state or country. Uh, Chase, who's normally with us, uh, or actually normally does the uh, Wednesday Bible Quest program, Chase has joined us today. Chase, good to see you here on Tuesday. How are you doing? Doing good. Good to see you guys. Glad you're on today. Yeah. And this is the first time you, you came in on a Tuesday with us, right? No, uh, no, I did last Tuesday as well. How soon we forget. <laughs> yes, no. right. Very good. Um, and then so today I, I, I announced it on, uh, uh, we, we announced it on a couple of our uh, Facebook pages about a special guest we have today. Eric Parker has written a book titled Behold the Builder. Um, I started reading it. I got the book a week ago. So I read an excellent book. We've got a couple of questions for him, so we're going to be asking him some questions on what he's written, but be, why, why waste any more time? Eric, welcome to the program today. Glad to have you today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to it. Great, great. So um, give us a little bit of background about yourself, Eric, and then we'll get into some questions. Uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Olivia, and we have two wonderful little kids that keep me busy. So writing that book was quite an undertaking. Uh, but I had a lot of support going into it, and uh, I was—I had a little bit of trepidation too because I've seen a lot of books written about a lot of different things that I was going to be talking about. So uh, I debated the purpose of the book and uh, figured out what niche I wanted to go for. I, I went with um, kind of an intermediate book, I've seen a lot of introductions, and I've seen a lot of um, boring books. So <laughs> I decided to go with an intermediate book. <laughs> All right, so so this is uh, scientific, but it's also has religious content as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called uh, "Behold a Builder," based on Hebrews three and verse four. Says that um, every house has a builder, and the builder of all things is God. Uh, and so I gave it a little subtitle too on the book. It says "Behold the Builder: Scientific Evidences for the Biblical God," uh, because a lot of these sorts of approaches have been taken generically, but to apply it to the biblical God, I think was a uh, maybe a, a unique attribute of the book. Yes. Uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, Chase, you want to start off with uh, any questions that you have in mind? No, I'll just clear one thing up. I'll say uh, Eric's book is on amazon.com. Just type in Behold the, Behold the Builder by Eric Parker. I put the link in the bottom of the Facebook page, and I'll also send it out to the uh, to the participants on this Zoom app as well. So. 
Excellent. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and so I think um, maybe good for us to start out with, um, because we are called Bible Quest. We want to find the truth as it relates to the Bible. Uh, and it's certainly great. And we're excited to have Eric on today. And I think Eric would agree um, talking about his book um, is to get us to the Bible, to get us to um, this creator that we're, that we're going to spend our time talking about and talking about scientific evidences. And actually within the Bible, the Bible points to what we're going to be doing today a little bit and looking at creation, looking at science, looking at those kinds of types of things, using your intellect um, to prove that there is a creator. So uh, I'll just give uh, one of those verses and then maybe Eric or you guys, uh, if you have another one, just briefly uh, in Romans one and verse 20, I think we've talked about this verse before uh, on this show, but in Romans one verse 20 says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And that they in that verse is humanity, uh, specifically the Gentiles who did not have the inspired, the revelation given um, in God's law. So in his creation, it's easy to see if you look deeply enough that um, there is a creator. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, today. Um, but do you guys, Eric, or, or either of the other guys have anything you want to say along those lines before we jump into some specifics? Well, I like say this. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. So I like uh, Romans one eighteen too in that passage because it talks about that you have to willingly suppress the truth based upon what you can see, uh, that the evidence itself is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say, uh, Eric, that uh, God um, has revealed himself through two sources? Yes, I think natural revelation uh, in nature, and I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, developing a knowledge and appreciation for God from nature, uh, but you have to get to the Bible. You have to get to that special revelation to learn about his love for you, to learn about forgiveness, more about the problem of sin, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, you brought up a verse, Jonathan. I think, uh, Eric, you had mentioned this earlier on when we were speaking about uh, Psalm 19. You want to go ahead and just start us off there with Psalm 19, why that's so important? Yeah. Uh, Psalm 19 uh, is pretty short. It's only uh, 14 verses. Uh, The first half of the Psalm talks about natural revelation. And so one of the most famous statements comes at the beginning of the Psalm. Psalm 19, one says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And some of the language that follows that is that the, the handiwork speaks to us and reveals to us knowledge. Uh, And it does that on a daily basis. And then after you get to, uh, you know, the first few verses of that talking about the course of the sun and the design of things, then you get to, in verses 7 through 14, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, uh, and starts developing that idea. It's, it's something that enlightens our eyes, that we get some knowledge from natural revelation, but we get a very specific set of knowledge of God specifically from, uh, from his revelation. Sure. Along those lines, Eric, why don't you take this time also to just introduce why you titled the book Behold the Builder over in Hebrews 3 and just kind of take it from there. So I'm, I'm passionate about evidences, uh, plenty of ways of arguing for God and, and thinking about various things for God. Um, but Hebrews 3 and verse 4 seem to be the, the clincher for that. You know, it makes a nice alliterative title, obviously, but um, just the idea that that there is design, there is architecture, there is engineering. I took some engineering courses in high school. I thought that that might be the direction I wanted to go in. And so that, that helped me a lot to think of it from that perspective. So, 
Great. All right. Well, um, well, let's jump in and, and talk a little bit about your book. Um, you kind of open in, in the first little bit of it uh, and talk about the, the history of science as it relates to religion. Um, and, and that's interesting. The subtitle that you picked for this book is Behold the Builder, Scientific Evidences for the Biblical God. And now that's kind of um, a little bit contrary to maybe what some people might think that you have scientific evidences against the biblical God. Yeah. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that and, and the history of, of science and religion kind of working together? Well, again, the Bible talks about that from a very early point. You know, Psalms was written about 1000 BC. And so this has been around for 3000 years, this idea that we get information from what we perceive and what we observe. And so that the idea of science, while we think of it as kind of a, maybe a novel innovation, uh, something that's been more organized in the past couple hundred years. The idea of science itself is something that the Bible does talk about. It's not a science textbook, but it does talk about things like taxonomy and does talk about um, the idea of design. And so the Bible itself talks about that really from the beginning. But you look at history and you think about um, some of the great schools, uh, the great colleges, Ivy League schools. How do they start out? They start out as seminaries. Mm -hmm. They start out as schools of theology. And so the people that got most interested at first really in scientific thought were those who were pursuing a deeper knowledge of God. And so you see that with a lot of different scientists and um, deists. You see that with theists. You see it all across the board, people that were not only Bible believers, but um, you know, people just in general. And so you think of uh, people like Blaise Pascal or Robert Boyle. Some of these guys made huge scientific advancements with the idea in mind that God does exist. That was a conclusion that they drew from observation. So uh, we're talking about a naturalistic worldview versus the uh, supernaturalistic worldview. And I'm sure we all have, have spoken to, or maybe one time we have had the concept that, well, is it really matter? Is it that important? Uh, that I, mean, I believe in God and I know he exists. I have his scriptures and that's all I need to know. What difference is about the arguments that's going on out in the world? But uh, there are consequences that flow from that naturalism worldview and consequences from the supernaturalism worldview. Can I talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, sure. You know, one of the accusations that's been levied against Christians and that Christians are uh, closed-minded uh, but I would say from a philosophical viewpoint that somebody who was open to something outside of the naturalism box uh, would be more open-minded. Now, that certainly should not be the first thing that we should go to. And so sometimes that accusation is uh, justified. But um, I think open-mindedness certainly is greater presented in a supernaturalistic viewpoint. Uh, I'd also say that um, meaning, purpose, significance, morality, ethics, all those things stem from the fact that um, there's a governor of our actions and somebody to whom we give account, as Acts 14 says. You had mentioned in your book, uh, method, met, I can't even say the word, methodological, methodological naturalism. Yeah, yeah. How, how is that? What's that about? So it's the idea that um, you need to approach things with the conclusion in mind that nothing outside of the box of naturalism can, can explain what you're looking at. And so you start out with a position against or you start off with a theological position that isn't an atheological position but you make a decision before you even look at anything that god cannot exist well yeah. that's, that, that, that's contrary to what they that's what they accuse us of 
Yeah. Yeah. Does that actually, uh, so, so that's, that's relating to the Christian approaching a, a certain scientific um, uh, theses or, or something like that. Um, but isn't that exactly what macroevolution, evolutionary science, uh, the Big Bang Theory, those types of things, don't those also pull from a supernatural type of they did. Uh, I mean, yeah. And so uh, the claim of objectivity in science is kind of a farce uh, because there is so much philosophy that goes into how we look at things and how we perceive evidence and the conclusions that we draw from evidence. Not to say that we can't be pretty objective, but uh, the way that we look at things comes through somewhat of a filter. And that's okay, the way that we look at things look coming through a filter, um, as long as we recognize what that filter is. Um, because when we want to overlook and claim objectivity, when we've already made a decision beforehand, uh, whether or not, or I'm going to allow this, but not this, then we're only going to see what we have already decided we want to see. I I do do want to say, this is backtracking just a little bit. Uh, sometimes I think we let Christians do rightfully so get labeled as ignorant and not knowing Uh, a whole lot because they don't want to invest a whole lot into learning these concepts and learning the terminology. Uh, And someone like myself who who isn't heavily educated, I mean, I I went to college a little bit. I just want to say that I think your book does a really good job of highlighting those terms and bringing out what the current debate really is. Uh, Because I do believe the Lord gives us a mind to learn those things. Uh, And I think, I think your book does a great job of getting down and explaining what the problem is, but also explaining and defining uh, macroevolution and things like that. So uh, if, if anyone's listening, who's kind of like me and you're hearing some of these terms thrown around and you're not quite grasping them, that's okay. I, I do think this book does a good job of helping us really understand what the issues are and what those terms are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one, I wanted to just briefly quote from your book, because I think you make a really good point early on in your book of why we're talking about this and, and what we want to uh, what we want to encourage for our viewers and listeners is is not to not to just listen to what we're saying and say oh, okay great <laughs> you know we'll follow that um, we want you to go and, and investigate and look at these things for yourself um, and so early in, in the book um, in in behold the builder Eric makes the point uh, in chapter two um, it, we need to be sure however that we take the time to lay a, a critical foundation of of deciding what your worldview is. Uh, an unwillingness on one's personal part to own and develop their worldview will result in one of two consequences, either number one, an unceasing vacillation between any and all worldviews, or number two, an adoption of another's worldview with no personal validation of the reasons for his or her conclusions. And so we, we don't want you to do either of those. Yeah. Um, we want our viewers to, to investigate these things, see for yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. The the great commandment is to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think oftentimes we want to overlook the fact that the mind is pointed out there. We need to love the Lord, our God with all of our mind. And just because we might be on different intellectual levels, doesn't mean that that responsibility is really any the less. It's just um, uh, appropriate to whatever our abilities are. Chase, you had a question, didn't you? Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. Eric highlights this in his book pretty well. How much science has changed the age of the earth over the last 100 to 200 years? So, Eric, just fast, go back 200 years ago or 100. What was the age of the earth to the scientists then? 
Uh, generally speaking, during the time of Darwin, Darwin believed that the world was, um, the earth was 20 million years old. Um, Where are we at now with leading scientists? We are at about four and a half billion years for the earth and about 13 to 14 billion years for the universe with expectations that it's going to go up. And the majority of the world puts their stock into these scientists and being able to date the earth when it's been proven they really don't have a handle on it. They, they don't really have a way to accurately do it as much as it's been changing. And so the question I have is, you know, what are their methods for proving this? Uh, how are they coming up with this 45 billion uh, number um, opposed to 20 million? Well, we could get uh, pretty in depth in regards to that, but just a few, um, you know, one of the most basic ones is ice core dating for the earth. You look at ice and you look at the, the climate of a particular area, like in the Arctic, and you say, okay, this much snow on average, this much ice on average comes per season. And so, you, you know, you have 100 feet of ice, you, you date it according to that. Uh, of course, the, the problem with that is you're assuming uniform processes. Uh, because 100 years ago, we're certainly not measuring that. Uh, but 100 years ago, it might have been totally different. Or there might have been, you know, incredible blizzards back then. Uh, lots of different things to consider. And so there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. And I brought out, I think in a footnote in the book, uh, that there was a um, World War plane that was found uh, buried in some ice really far down. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to try and use that ice core dating, we have to um, overlook that <laughs> because that calls into question ice core dating uh, pretty significantly. And there are other things too, but the plane um, is, is interesting called Glacier Girl. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, one of the ones that we're more familiar with from school is like, carbon-14 dating, you know, you hear carbon-14 dating, that, that mm -hmm. establishes beyond a doubt what the date of something is. The problem with carbon-14 dating is it has a lot, lot of assumptions, as do some of the other um, dating methods like radioisotopic um, dating. You're assuming, first of all, the original um, state of things. You're assuming, again, uniform processes, which we have good reason to question. Uh, you're, con you're assuming that there is um, no crossing over between different samples you, you know you're assuming a lot of different things uh based upon this and then sometimes i don't think it's made clear that carbon 14 will actually break down to where it's unobservable over a hundred thousand years and so carbon 14 dating is no good after a hundred thousand years remember the timeline for the naturalist goes far beyond a hundred thousand years uh into the billions of years and so carbon 14 cannot get that date for you uh, whereas something that would be more radioisotopic dating, uh, something that takes a little bit longer to break down as opposed to carbon-14, something you know lower on the periodic table, uh, it basically you're running into the same issues, though. Right, because we're finding dinosaur fossils that, according to their timeline, would be millions of years old. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in your book, you highlight uh, later, not in the dinosaur section, but a little later on, I think in Chapter 6, uh, that the fossil record shows a T-Rex, a smaller T-Rex, who's, we still have their bone tissue, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's plenty of examples of that, too. Yeah, and here they're saying it's millions of years old, yet that is one of the first things to go uh, if, if it was to uh, fossilize over that, that length of time. Jonathan, yeah. you look like you have your hand up. Well, before, yeah. before you go there, I, I do want to invite our viewers that's coming in on the, on the uh, Zoom app and also those on the Facebook page, uh, text in your questions if you have any questions for Eric. Uh, as we're asking them our questions, we surely would like to hear you 
you know, present some of your questions or comments. So, but that, was I interrupting you, Jonathan? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no. So, um, so in, in the section uh, and keeping with this idea of, of dating the earth, um, going back, how old is, is our earth? Um, it, you mentioned that from the naturalist point of view, there's, there's kind of um, one of the biggest roadblocks to that is this idea of uniformitarianism. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about that as a, and the difference between that and um, um, what's the opposite? Catastrophism. <laughs> Catastrophism. Yeah, I'll let you go for that. Yeah, it's one of those things. You just you, when you're reading the book, you don't have to say it out loud. You just get to yes. you just get to read the letters, and then you go to say it out loud, and you're like, oh, this is a hard word. Yeah. So uniformitarianism is just the ism, the belief that everything has happened the same way consistently throughout time. Uh, so if I look at the seashore and I notice that there are there's uh, three inches of erosion per year, um, I judge based upon that how much erosion has taken place, and that gives me kind of an age of that beach. Um, but the problem with that, again, is is catastrophes. Catastrophes can change things very quickly. Mount St. Helens is one, not, not quite in a, a few of our timelines, but maybe Drew in your timeline. Mount St. Helens grew up <laughs> about 10 years before I was around. Uh, and, and so you see a total change in the landscape. Uh, and you can see, you know, there's, a, there's a, basically a scale version of the Grand Canyon that was established in a 24-hour period. I mean, it's just incredible to think about um, how much impact catastrophes can have. And, and that certainly is not the biggest catastrophe that we have strong evidence for, and yet it changed things. So if we were to look at, that what we find around Mount St. Helens and assume uniform processes, we would actually get a wrong date for that. And it would be wrong by quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for the believer in the Bible, trying to put um, the, the idea um, behind evolution and creationism together, um, you get this theistic um, evolutionary theory. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that, maybe um, like the gap theory as it relates to the account of creation in Genesis 1? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think a lot of this comes down to like intimidation. You know, we, we, we come to an academic setting as, as a believer, uh, and this has been kind of hammered down our throats. This is very narrow. Uh, this is a fact, and if you question this fact, then, uh, you know, you don't know anything, you're ignorant. Uh, and so we, people are tempted to try and accommodate that. And so the way that that is accommodated is through um, basically two common methods. One is uh, gap theory. Gap theory is that Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you have a blank slate. And then between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 would be this unmentioned gap of who knows how long. Uh, to accommodate a a huge timeline that um, fits more of an evolutionary time period. There's no mention of it. Uh, That certainly would be against Kramer. Uh, And and even the the naturalistic processes as far as the the development of life doesn't even match up. Um, So it's, it's not just time that's the issue. You're also dealing with the order of things being totally different. So, you know, if, if a Christian is, is tempted to try and accommodate that, then that, that does present issues and it does have consequences. So that's gap theory. The second one would be the day age theory and the idea that uh, a day is not really a day. And the Bible uses uh, this idea that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And that's oftentimes quoted as kind of a proof that we need to have more of an, an open mindedness about the definition of a day. But 
in Genesis 1, you see it bookended by an evening and a morning. Um, even before we get the sun, there's light in some capacity in morning and evening. So if we're going to be consistent about how Genesis 1 uses that terminology, even after the creation of the sun, then we're going to have to be um, a little bit more narrow about that. And, um, you know, on the seventh day, if we're saying a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, God takes uh, a thousand years to rest, apparently. Uh, and he commands the Israelites to observe that every week, a thousand years of rest every week doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's just problematic to begin with, yeah. just textually speaking. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying, so, to, you're trying to take two totally different viewpoints and morph them together. They are mutually exclusive viewpoints. So, yeah, that's, that was going to be my next thing. In most of the cases, I don't want to say in all the cases because I don't want to cubbyhole anybody. What would be the motivation behind wanting to prove gap theory or proving the day age theory? Uh, I think probably fear. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of accusations that get thrown around. Christians don't know anything. And so people maybe become afraid of that. Sometimes uh, if you're in an academic setting, uh, there can be pressures upon you where you can get fired for taking anything other than a naturalistic viewpoint. And there are plenty of examples of that. Uh, Stephen Meyer, uh, a little while back, he, he wrote an article that was published in a Smithsonian magazine. Uh, and, and the one who was kind of editing that magazine included it. It was about intelligent design and he got all sorts of kickback uh, and threats against his job. Uh, and it became, you know, they had to have like a white house, uh, group that that dealt with this because there was such an agenda against somebody who has anything other than uh, the naturalistic viewpoint. Yeah. And you you talk problem. about that in chapter seven of your book as well. Yeah. So fear is a big one. And then I think, you know, people just, maybe they don't know, they don't know the significance. They don't know the consequences uh, of the, the differences between the two viewpoints. Mm-hmm. So uh, one last thing, and and we kind of briefly talked about this before the show, um, but I'm just curious if you could briefly summarize um, just one uh, evidence in particular. Um, we talked a little bit about um, the afterglow, um, and and I don't want to misquote or, or do anything, but we talked a little bit about about that um, and and what that's all about. Yeah. So um, the afterglow is is basically the idea that there are heat signatures in the universe that when we look out into the universe we see hot pockets. Uh, and so those hot pockets uh, from a naturalistic standpoint are taken as foolproof evidence that the big bang happened because you have a lot of intensity that is spread out. Um, you know, you have red shifting, uh, which would indicate kind of expansion in the universe. Uh, but from a supernaturalistic viewpoint that fits too. And I think it fits much better because you're talking about rapid expansion. Well, what do you see in Genesis one? rapid expansion. And so that's, you know, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Uh, but again, that evidence is interpreted in light of a filter and that filter is acknowledged by, I think the believer is not always acknowledged by the unbeliever. So everyone starts off with a bias. We all have biases. It's just a matter of recognizing we have biases, but let's look at the evidence and see what the evidence is saying. And, and structure my thinking based on the evidence, not what I want it to say, right? Yeah, there, I mean, there's presuppositions and there's even pre-foundational sorts of things. We're assuming, of course, that we each have minds. Uh, we're assuming that my perception of what's going on in the video is accurate. So we have, the, before we even start thinking, those are pre-foundational thoughts that we just accept. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
Uh, in fact, it just, again, recognize it. And then you have presuppositions, and those are the decisions that we make before we look at the evidence. Um, and then suppositions, of course, would be the things that we draw from the evidence itself. Uh, regarding those afterglows, I like you quoted uh, an astronomer named George Chmout who said machining mark uh, that, that regarding these ripple marks, they're machining marks from the creation of the universe and the fingerprints of the maker. Uh, yep. I think that's a really, really good quote. And Apparently he and he's another a project man. leader of some kind. Yeah, of the Kobe satellite. The Kobe satellite was basically sent up. It was connected with the Challenger explosion, mm-hmm. actually. And so they oh, sent okay. up and they measured things. And they measured those radiation signatures. And actually, George Smoot and another man won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2006 based upon some of that research. Wow. Wow. Now, you, you mentioned the, the Big Bang in, in passing. One of you did. And I've always had a, a little bit of a problem with the Big Bang uh, theory itself. Um, first of all, before I get into my question uh, or comment, the Big Bang, the term Big Bang, if I'm not mistaken, Eric, that was that was given to a group of scientists as an, as an insult or mm-hmm. right. Yeah. My, do I recall that correctly? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. What I've always heard. <laughs> yeah. It started off as, a, but then it became acceptable as the, 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 the actual theory. But yep. the one thing that uh, they, they theorize, I mean, there's no proof of the big bang to begin with. Obviously there's, they use look at evidence and theorize that. But the one thing that no one will ever go to is the big bang Suppose you started that with something about a football size, they say, of, of the whole universe condensed down to that side, and then it, it exploded. The question then is, well, where did the football come from? Yeah, I mean, cosmologically, you're just pushing the goalposts, but that doesn't really do much. Uh, you still have to explain where that came from. Yeah. So um, shifting gears just a little bit, um, along these this whole lines, um, let me give you a hypothetical type of question. Uh, if you're approached by a, a naturalistic, uh, atheistic individual uh, and having this type of conversation with them along with the lines of evidences, um, one common thing that may come up is this person can say, uh, okay, so if, if God created everything, then who created God? Yeah. Um, how would you approach that, that type of argument? Yeah, so it's basically the same approach as uh, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock that he can't move? Uh, you know, that's sort of an idea. Uh, basically, what we're talking about uh, logically is, is, is a logical fallacy called uh, the fallacy, the category fallacy, or the categorical fallacy. And so it'd be like me asking the question, what color is J? <laughs> They're two totally different categories. Uh, and so it's a categorical fallacy. We understand that, you know. Um, so it's, it's just a matter of categories. You know, it, it, that probably is more used as a scoff or a ridicule than an actual question because, again, if you, if you framed it in that sense, uh, what color is J, then they're going to be like, you know, it's, 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 so probably a lot of that is just sort of a ridicule attempt. They're taking the concept that since uh, we say that the, the, the material Lord had a beginning, therefore they'll make the assumption, well, God had a beginning too. Well, no, there's something that had to be eternal. Yeah. Always. I mean, we exist, there's something here. So that means something always had to exist because what's here can't create itself, can't make itself. So something had to always be here. Yeah. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't finish your book yet, but you do talk a little bit about uh, that side of it, that the uh, creation cannot create itself. Mm. So, and, and if that's the case, and since that's the case, 
then what's the other option? The other option is that then there's something that's not materialism, something that's outside of the material existence that yeah. always existed. And, and you know, we, some of us would call it mind. Yeah. Mind always existed. And then we would go further and call that God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and science attests to that, uh, the law of biogenesis, life comes from life. Uh, you know, there have been claims that abiogenesis or biopoiesis, there's another term for it, uh, have been observed in a laboratory setting, but it's only with people who are monkeying the numbers, uh, people that have studied how life exists, and they take the various different elements and put them together in a very specific way so that life exists. So what do you have? You have intelligent design. You have somebody monkeying with it. Uh, and so that was, you know, that's done in a lot of different places. Uh, Richard Dawkins did that with a computer program. Um, he thinks it's a weasel, but he, he put that as a possibility in the program. So he programmed that conclusion. And, and so again, it just goes to attest intelligent design. We have a comment that came in that uh, based on something we already addressed, or maybe we, uh, you guys can respond to it comes in from Don. He says, John 11, 9, Jesus said that there are, uh, are there not 12 hours in the day? If Jesus said it, then there's 12 hours in the night. So a day is not any longer. In other words, not any longer than 24 hours. I don't know if that yeah. relates, but Jesus is referring to 12 hours of the day, not referring to a day period cycle, but a portion of the day. 12 hours and as opposed to a full 24 hour day yeah, sure, and a portion sure. of the day 24 hour period is night so is that what, what's being said here so that would be something that you could um you know connect to as far as a fine-tuning fine-tuning sort of an approach um the fact that our earth spins at that rate you know a thousand miles per hour um the fact that it spins at that rate definitely is something that is designed specifically but yeah yeah, and I mean, there are other things that Jesus will say. Matthew 19, and Eric touches this in his book as well, where we understand Jesus takes the Genesis account as literal yeah. and not figurative in any sense. So yeah, Jesus, time and time again, you can look at different ways or different different things he uses to suggest that he would take Genesis as literal. Yeah, um, and, and, day, and in I think, day in a narrative context, which everyone's agreed that Genesis 1 is a narrative context. Every Hebrew scholar, I, I quoted that in the book, Stephen Boyd says that uh, every Hebrew scholar recognizes that that's narrative and it's unique among ancient Near Eastern uh, creation stories because um, what you always see elsewhere is epic poetry and ancient Near Eastern uh, creation sort of myths, whereas the Bible gives a narrative context yeah isn't that interesting just by chance right yep uh so i've got another question for you um we've brought this term up several times but macro evolution uh versus micro evolution i gotta say until i read your book this just this is me showing my ignorance here i just thought that that was the same word but people were just saying it incorrectly or correctly and i just never knew so why don't you explain to me what the difference between macro and micro evolution is one letter. No, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Uh, microevolution would just simply be the, the idea of adaptation. If I live closer to the equator, then my skin will get darker uh, because I'm programmed that way. Uh, whereas macroevolution would be, as uh, Turek and Geisler said in their book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It'd be goo to you via the zoo. And so you don't have the creation of man at the beginning. Uh, you have goo that 
you know, through all these crazy probabilities somehow manages to advance to our level. And so that's the basic difference is the ability to adapt to an environment versus goo to you via the zoo. So macro, an example of that would be like the monkey chart that we see so yeah. often in books. Yeah. Or the moth chart, or the uh, or the uh, what what was it the um, the finch chart? That I think the, the the moth and the finch probably would be greater illustrations of microevolution. They've been used uh, as examples of macroevolution, but they're really adaptations. Uh, you're okay. talking about the the change of color. Both are moths. Uh, between um, you know Kettlewell's observations about those moths in in London. Uh, so you've got one black moth and you've got one white moth. They're the same basic species. They just adapted to their environments. And some of that's kind of staged in, in different presentations too. But, um, you know, the other one that we use is Darwin's finches. Darwin's finches, they're still finches. Uh, a finch, you know, has a big bill based upon what kind of nuts and things it has to crack um, versus one that, you know, has easier access to uh, softer nuts can have a smaller bill. It, it doesn't really make a huge difference. Uh, so those are examples of microevolution or, or adaptation. Yeah, that's cool. And I know that was especially helpful for me because, uh, you know, these terms, I grew up going to public school, as I think everyone in here did uh, in the, in the, uh, of the panelists. And I, I never was defined it like that. I, it was always with the evolutionists push behind it without taking creation and reasoning from it. So yeah, they're, they're usually lumped together. They shouldn't be. Right. So, um, so just to clarify, um, from a supernatural theistic viewpoint, microevolution. Yeah, I think, I think we would be foolish to deny microevolution. In fact, the Bible affirms it in Acts chapter 17, says from one man, God created all the nations of the earth. Well, you look at different nations. Well, you just got engaged. You got engaged into the Smelser family. So contrast Bertina Smelser, who's like four feet tall (laughs) and some of the kids and they're, I mean, incredibly different just right there. You know, you're talking about within a generation or, you know, with one, within one generation or two generations, talking about huge variability, but there's still people as far as I know. Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. I sure hope so. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then, Eric, your example of someone that lives closer to the equator. I mean, why why is it that people in Alaska, why do they look different from people who come from the middle of Africa? You know, Eskimos versus an an African native, uh, their skin, their their eyes, their everything has adapted to the uh, to their surroundings. Um, and yeah. I think that's the Lord's will. I think that's the that's the builder that you see behind the human. That's design. It's programmability. Right. It's right. incredible. It should cause us to marvel. Right. We talked about dinosaurs uh, a little bit, but I don't know if you mentioned it in, in today's program about uh, that there's evidence of, of dinosaurs living at the same time as man, which that would be anathema from, from yeah. the evolutionary point of view. And, and I, I was that, did I read about, uh, did you mention Marco Polo in your book? Yep. I, I don't know if I read that somewhere else, but he tells an interesting story. And let that be a lead into some of the other evidence we have. Okay, so Marco Polo and the travels of Marco Polo, the Venetian, he writes uh, about his trip to China. And, and on his trip to China, he um, witnessed these great dragons, or great uh, as, as the term that he uses. And that basically comes from Latin, dracon. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you just real quick, Eric. Can you tell us what year Marco Polo was? 
Uh, several hundred years ago. I couldn't be super specific, okay. but it was several hundred years ago. Okay. Um, All right, continue. Sorry. So he writes about these um, dinosaurs in the way that he describes it is so specific. Sharp teeth, two short front legs with a massive tail, and he even gives dimensions of this uh, great creature. And it sounds exactly like a Tyrannosaurus rex or, or possibly an iguanodon. Uh, and the way that it moves is described in detail. He even talks about how um, villagers would hunt these things. He says that they would basically dig foxholes out and they would put sharpened spears in the bottom. So if you want to kill a dinosaur, right, you got to be innovative. And so they were innovative and they, they, they would kill these things. And, and that helps explain where the dinosaurs went uh, and kind of just using common sense. Would you like, you know, velociraptors and Tyrannosaurus rex, you know, marching through your vi village? And not even necessarily carnivores, but um, even something like a brontosaurus. Brontosaurus comes in and smashes everybody's tents. You know, that, that causes issues. So you probably would want to eliminate those creatures. Marco Polo was 13th and 14th century from what I'm reading. So, yeah. yeah and in, in your section of your book talking about dinosaurs, um, as far as it relates to the coexistence of, of mankind and dinosaurs, there's really evidence of that. In, in every one of the habitable continents on, yeah. on the earth. You want to talk about that um, just briefly? Yeah, uh, artwork's a big one. Uh, you see uh, portrayals of humans next to dinosaurs on top of dinosaurs. You see various figurines in different places. Um, you see cave paintings, uh, petroglyphs. Uh, you see all sorts of different things. And again, that's everywhere. You see it in North America. You see it in South America, Central America, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, all the way up in Russia. You know, you've got... Um, dinosaur footprints with human footprints in them. Uh, you've got a lot of different testimonies to these things. The Acambaro figurines in Mexico, the Ica burial stones down in Peru. Uh, you've got um, all sorts of different artwork and things. The Richard Bell tomb has um, sauropods or kind of like long necks, we would say, uh, on his tomb from a few hundred years ago. And so uh, you've got all sorts of different demonstrations of coexistence. Remember, this is way before Jurassic Park. Uh, and so their depictions of dinosaurs are spot on. Uh, they, uh, as far as the plating or the amount of horns that we would expect from what we have gained from our paleontological knowledge, uh, it's just spot on. Do you have some of those illustrations in your book? I do, yes. Great. We Not all of them. We, yeah, we, did, we didn't plan for showing them on the screen today, but I just wanted the audience to know that uh, you have a lot of the detailed evidence in the book, in the book yeah. that you wrote. Yep. Yeah. And um, so as it, as it relates to that, and, and there have been um, there have been these discoveries that that point to the coexistence of of man and dinosaur, which has always been kind of uh, one of the cornerstones of evolution and evolutionary theory that dinosaurs and man don't exist together. Yeah, the billions of years of separation. Five million um, years. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Um, so one of the quotes from, uh, a professor that you quoted from is, uh, Lewis Jacobs. I don't know if you remember this quote, um, oh, map I can let you share university. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to read that really quickly. Um, such an association, this is Lewis Jacobs talking, uh, such an association, which is talking about the co-occurrence of men and dinosaurs coexistence that would dispel an earth with vast antiquity. The entire history of creation, including the day of rest, could be accommodated in the seven biblical days of the Genesis myth. Evolution would evolution would be vanquished. Um, so if basically if we were to find that man and dinosaur existed together, 
evolution would be done for um as would an old earth so mm-hmm. you know we've we found an embarrassment of riches that has totally overturned that so how do you combat the fossil record with all of these dinosaurs that we've discovered in the fossil record because uh, uh, i did get the impression that you, you admit that it's probably one of the most devastating challenges to a christian uh, to his faith, uh, the geologic, the the, yeah, the geological record and the fossils. How do you, how do you uh, combat the fossil record? Uh, it's certainly something you have to, uh, you know, strengthen yourself on and learn the terms and things. And a lot of people approaching things. Stephen Meyer does a great job talking about geology. He's a geophysicist um, and and arguing for intelligent design, but. Um, he he has an old Earth, and so you're still dealing with a lot of people that are very intelligent you know, and would concede the uh, existence of God, but they're still trying to put that age in there. And, and so I think uh, the key really here is uh, catastrophic processes, particularly the flood. And, and so the flood would explain quite a bit as far as a worldwide flood, um, moving things, long transport, you know, seashells on top of mountains. Uh, everyone believes that the world was covered with water, um, at least at various times. Even a naturalist is going to have to concede that Otherwise, how do you get, you know, seashells on top of mountains? Uh, tectonic theory would be in itself insufficient to explain that. Uh, so you've got that, you know, you've got the Grand Canyon with the various knife edge sedimentary layers, uh, the great unconformity there. You've got bent and folded strata. You know, you've got uh, animals that are supposedly millions of years separated from their own footprints uh, in the strata. You've got uh, polystrate fossils, like a tree would cross millions and millions of years because it's been buried rapidly. Uh, and so catastrophic processes are able to explain um, a lot of that. So it's a matter of really honestly looking at the evidence that does exist and not start with a preconceived comp- uh, uh, concept. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're, we got we're a little bit past the time, but I, I, I would like to uh, ask a question here that we, we all talked about a little bit before the show was what is the most indisputable scientific finding or topic that you've discovered in your studies that proves creationism uh, and the existence of the biblical God? As far as scientific um, things considered, I think intelligent design. And, and I think that that's rooted there in Hebrews three and verse four, every house is a builder and the builder of all things is God. But intelligent design certainly has picked up a lot of steam recently uh, and particularly the realm of information. Uh, there was an information scientist that just left Yale uni- or that just came out of Yale University and saying, you know, I, I can't accept Darwinism anymore. I, I just can't do it. Uh, and, and based on information and the study of information. So I think information is going to be your key there. I use the illustration in the book, and I like to use this illustration. If I go in my backyard and I find 100 rocks, uh, the scattering of those rocks is highly unique, but in and of itself doesn't demonstrate design. But if I go in my backyard and I find a hundred rocks, it says Eric dad or Eric Parker is a good writer or Eric Parker, you know, whatever. He's a good dad. Uh, That's going to tell me that there's information. So when we look at cells and we look at DNA, not only do we have uniqueness or um, improbability, but we also have design for purpose and programming. We have information there. Absolutely. Well, we, we would love to spend more time with you. Uh, maybe in the future, we'll do another program to get into some of those topics on how complex everything really is, especially the human uh, body itself, which connotes the uh, 
design concept of this. Guys, before we do close off, is there anything else? I, I know we went past the time a little bit, but we want to respect everybody's time. Anything else you want to say? Jonathan? Yeah, I'll just mention, um, just again, really quickly, what we're talking about, um, and I have the book here, you can see, and we've posted the link um, for this, but it's uh, Eric's book, Behold the Builder, uh, Scientific Evidences for the Biblical God. Um, like we said throughout and at the beginning of our of our uh, uh, webinar, we want to promote um, looking for yourself, seeing these evidences for yourself, finding out these truths, doing your own research, uh, and that. So whatever background that you're coming from, uh, I think it's incredibly important from from a theistic or an atheistic background, um, look at these things and, and and see for yourself on those things. And if you're looking for a helpful tool um, to maybe get you started, um, we recommend uh, Eric's book um, to help you to do that. Um, like Eric was saying at the beginning, intermediate level, um, easy to understand, easy to follow, and, and can maybe give you a starting point on looking for those things. Well, excellent. Gentlemen, thank you very much, all of you. And thank you for the comments that, come in, that came in. If you have any more questions, uh, you're watching this. Maybe you're watching this program from the podcast that's that you, the recorded version of it. Go to the website BibleQuest.tv after you've listened to this podcast. If you have further comments, questions, or things you'd like to challenge challenge us on, we welcome all questions and comments. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing everyone tomorrow. Eric, thank you very much for taking the time to come be with us today. Thanks for the invitation.